right, open up to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. And it's a psalm of praise for God's faithfulness and his justice. Now, life wasn't easy, and it goes right along with what we're studying in Ezra. Life wasn't easy for the Jewish remnant that had returned to Jerusalem after the captivity in Babylon, which we've been, again, studying recently in, in Ezra. And their neighbors, remember, they were often hostile towards them. They wrote the nasty letter to the Persian king and uh, the officials, and, and, and the, the people weren't always cooperative, and, and their final financial situation was very hard for them. Ezra the scribe and the prophet Haggai describe some of these problems in their books, Ezra and Haggai. And they point out that the Jewish people were not always faithful to the Lord, nor were they generous always to one another. This is why God withheld his blessing from them. And again, um, this psalm may have been written by one of the Levites to remind the people to put the Lord first in their life. And to trust him to meet their every need. And the next Psalm, 112, describes the blessings that God will give to those who truly fear him and do his will. Both Psalms are acrostics, with each line beginning with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The other acrostic Psalms are Psalm 9, 10, 24, 34, 37, 119, and 145. This was a special style of writing, and the arrangement may have been to help the people to memorize God's word. And the writer in chapters here, uh, Psalm 111, gives us four instructions to follow, instructions that we need to mark down tonight, if we would enjoy the help and the blessing of the Lord in difficult situations in our life. Psalm 111 is a wisdom psalm, and it also serves as a psalm of praise. This psalm and the next are written as acrostics. Now, an acrostic is a piece of writing where a particular set of letters, typically the first letter of each line, word or paragraph, spells out a word or a phrase with special significance to the text. Acrostics are most commonly written as a form of poetry, but they can also be found in in a particular style of writing or used as word puzzles and many times crossword puzzles, you know, say an acrostic for, you know, a certain word. In the most common type of acrostic poems, the first letter of each line forms a word. This type of acrostic is simply called an acrostic. For example, roses are red. All right, you have the R in roses. Oranges, yummy. You have the O at the beginning. Sugar's a sweet and then elixir in my tummy. So it's R-O-S-C. It's an acrostic for rose. The structure of the psalm goes like this. First of all, a determination to praise God in the midst of the congregation, verse 1. Second, a description of the praise of God for his wonderful works towards his people in verses 2 through 9. Third, a closing word tying the nature of true wisdom to the fear of the Lord. The theme of the psalm is the goodness of God demonstrated in his works. All that God does is good. Reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. The author, anonymous. We don't know who it is. We'll see the words works, deeds, and wonders, which basically all mean the same thing. So let's begin with Psalm 111, verse 1. And the writer says, Praise the Lord. 
I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So the first instruction, the first thing we need to do if we're going to receive God's blessing and help in difficult situations is begin with worship and praise. Praise the Lord here means hallelujah. So this and others are called hallelujah songs because they start with praise the Lord, which speaks of the inspiration and the hopeful attitude of these songs. The psalmist tells everybody here that he's going to praise the Lord himself. But you know what? He wants others to do it too. And that's why in most of the Psalms, he gives them some good reasons and instructions for doing so. Now, he's not asking to do something that he's not doing. How often do we encourage somebody to do something? We give them counsel that's for their own good, and yet we don't do it. We're good at giving people advice, but we're not real good at taking our own advice. You see, if we want to preach love to them, we have to love the ones that we preach to. If we want them to love God, we have to love God. If we want others to serve God, we have to serve Him too. We have to set the example. We're so good, like I said, at telling others what, what's good for them, and yet we don't follow our own advice. The next thing the psalmist says is that he's going to praise the Lord, notice, with what? His whole heart. Not half-hearted praise. You know, there are some people barely praise the Lord at all. That's because they don't know Him. So they can't praise Him. But here's the sad thing. Of those who do know Him, there's only a half-hearted and casual devotion. Which is kind of a contradiction, because if a person really, really knows God at all, he has to be known as one who's totally worthy of our very best and highest praise. So we need to stop giving him half-hearted worship and worship him like the creator that he is, like the redeemer that he is, like the savior God that he is. And we need to make up our minds that we're going to praise him with our whole heart like the psalmist does here. Listen to what God says about half-hearted worship in Malachi 1, 6-9. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I, this is God speaking, if then I am the father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way do we, have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? It, it, you know, offer it then to your governor. <laughs> Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. He says, when you come to worship me and offer your sacrifice, you bring lame sacrifices, sick, you know, uh, uh, deformed, and, and you give me your castoffs. And, and yet you say, you know, that... that you know, you're not being contemptible. God accused the priests of not honoring him, even to the point of despising his name and not being good spiritual examples to the people. Now, the temple had been rebuilt in about 516 B.C., and worship was being done there, but the priests didn't worship God properly. There is a right way and a wrong way to worship God, despite what many might say. They were not following his laws for offering sacrifices the proper way. 
The priests had fallen away from God and the people along with them. You know, like, like leaders like the people. They were no longer worshiping God with heartfelt adoration. That is, they were no longer worshiping God with their whole heart. Instead, it was nothing more than a tiring job for the priests. Listen to what God's law said. Again, it said to bring him only the best animals to be offered to him. Leviticus 1.3, when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. But these priests were allowing the people to bring in their blind and crippled and diseased animals to offer to God. So God accused them of dishonoring him by offering their defective, flawed sacrifice. He, he, was, he was very displeased. The New Testament says that we are, we are to be living sacrifices to God. We have to ask ourselves, when we come into this sanctuary as a living sacrifice, what is it we're offering to God? If we give God only our leftovers... That is, whatever time we have left for him, whatever money we have left over, whatever energy we have left over for him, we have left over, you know, from from serving ourselves. Aren't we committing the same sin as these worshipers here? Who didn't want to bring anything valuable to God? They didn't want to bring anything costly. What we give to God shows our real attitude toward him. You see, it's easy to give to God something that doesn't cost me anything. It's real easy. We see that the people sacrificed wrongly to God through expediency, that is, through convenience. Offering them to what was as cheap as possible. I love what A.W. Tozer said, and it's so true. Too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but they're not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. Secondly, the people sacrificed wrongly to God through neglect. You see, they didn't care how they offered their sacrifice. And third, it was straight out disobedience. Because you see, they were sacrificing the way they wanted to. They were sacrificing their own way. They were not following what God had commanded them to do. In Genesis 4, we see this at the very beginning. Cain is the one who started all of this. Cain brought the offering, his offering, from the fruit of the ground to God. But the Lord didn't respect Cain's offering. Why? Because it was a bloodless sacrifice. This shows us from the very beginning that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22 and 11.4. Cain acknowledged God. He was a religious man. But he rejected God's way of worship. Now, Abel, his brother, came with a lamb. You see, Cain brought what he wanted to bring. He came to God in his own way. That's false religion. We can't come to God in our own way. Cain was was religious, but he wasn't righteous. Cain was the father of false religion. The way they gave in Malachi showed their attitude toward God. How about our attitude? Does expedience, that is convenience, neglect or disobedience describe what we give and how we give to God? 
And then the psalmist promises to praise God. It says, notice in verse 1, in the, in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. He's talking about public praise. This isn't, this, this isn't private devotion that, that, that the psalmist is talking about. This isn't closet Christianity. He says, I want to worship the Lord openly with my fellow believers. The way he praises God is important. Showing us, showing us how we should worship God. It tells us that we should worship God intensely, powerfully, strongly, and deeply, passionately with our whole heart, and that we should worship God together in the church. We do this on Sunday morning in church. But do we set an example at other times as well? Not just in church. Do we worship God wholeheartedly all the time? The best way to worship is to prepare for worship starting Saturday night. We should be thinking about Sunday morning. We should be thinking about when we come into the sanctuary. Are we ready to worship God? Are we coming in with a, a, a worshipful state of mind? Are we getting ready to worship the holy, almighty God? We should, be, we should be getting rested on Saturday night to come in Saturday morning or Sunday morning, giving him our best. Because he deserves our best, because he gave us his best when you look at the cross. I mean, you would do this if you had an important business meeting on, Sunday, on Monday morning. I'd make sure I'd have my clothes ready, man. I'd be rested because I want to go in there and I want to go into that business meeting. I want to go into that interview. I want to go into that presentation in the morning as sharp as can be. Because I want to impress the one that I'm being interviewed with from. But a lot of times we drag ourselves in here Sunday and oh, you know, we're just, you know, we're, we're just here in body. I mean, should we do any less for God than we would do it in our workplace? Is worshiping God less important? Now, in verses 2 through 6, we see the next thing we're to do if we're to get God's help and blessing in difficult situations. And that is remembering God's great works. Let's look at verses 2 through 4 to begin with. The works of the Lord are great. Studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endures forever. Verse 4. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. So now the psalmist is thinking about the wonderful works of the Lord. But where in the, when, you, when you're talking about the wonderful works of the Lord, or you're thinking about the wonderful works of the Lord, where do you begin with all of that? Well, how about at the beginning with creation? I mean, you could spend forever talking about God's creation. The limitlessness of the universe. Living organisms that you can't see with the human eye. The design and the order of living things. Cells in the body, DNA, the brain, the heart, the eye. I mean, there is so much mystery and awe. In all living things. But the idea today of believing that this universe started as a result of natural causes. And that nothing <laughs> turned into something without a designer. 
being involved is totally ridiculous and unimaginable. A Harvard professor said this. He said, I choose to believe in that which is impossible, speaking of creation, rather than to accept the alternative, which is the unthinkable evolution. Evolution takes away the glory from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and it robs him of his glory. It's as bad as saying that the Lord can't save or that the Lord is not Savior. If you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, you must also accept him as creator. You cannot pick and choose what you want to believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the psalmist mentions the redemption that we have, which is part of the psalmist's praise. In God's grace and compassion, verse 4 says, He placed us in such a beautiful environment. Look at verse 5. He has given food uh, to those who fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. Here the psalmist turns his praise for the works of God's creation to praise for the things that the Lord did for the Jewish people. The psalmist praises God for His provisions. For example, the food that's mentioned in verse 5 is the manna that God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Just like Jehovah provided manna for Israel in the wilderness, He also provides for the needs of His people at all times. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all of your need, not all of your wants. He shall supply all of your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, and this is what we're going to study next Sunday morning. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. He says, those are the things that Gentiles worry about. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Jesus, those are, that's what the world worries about. For your heavenly father knows that you need all of these things. God's deliverance from Egypt was a proof that he remembered his covenant with the patriarchs and it was a promise that he would never forget. And you know what? He will never forget nor neglect the covenant that he's made when he redeemed you to save you. Verse 6. He shall judge. Oops, wrong place. Verse 6. I was in 110. Verse 6. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The power of his works. This speaks of driving out the Canaanites and giving Israel their land for its inheritance. Jehovah in this situation demonstrated his power. That gift was the pledge. The land of Canaan was God's pledge of God's sovereignty. He said in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Isaiah 60, 14. Also, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And then the third thing that we need to do to receive God's blessing and help in times of, of trial and times of trouble is depend upon God's word. Verses 7 through 9. Let's look at the first part of verse 7. Notice what the, what the psalmist says. The works of his hands are verity and justice. Jehovah's actions are demonstrations of his eternal nature of truth and justice. God is, all, God is always true to his promises. He is not a liar. He's always fair in his government of the world. 
The gift of Canaan to Israel was the fulfillment of his promise to the patriarchs. He said, I promise you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Well, at the same time, he removed those who were living there as payback for their sins. The second part of verse 7 and then 8. It says, all his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are, are done in truth and righteousness. Those who left Egypt in the Exodus remember what, remembered what happened on Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are as unchanging as the God who gave them. They reflect His truth and they reflect His, his righteousness, His uprightness. And the law is, is a permanent possession with present promises and demands and everything that it suggests. All His precepts are sure and they stand fast. Forever and ever. We read in Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 19, 7 through 9. It's a great psalm. It speaks of the word of God. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The events mentioned in 5 through 8 here, verses 5 through 8, they're past events. But these provisions mentioned in there still continue today. God provided manna every day for the children of Israel. God provides our food every day. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 11, give us our daily bread. And because we're Christians, we enjoy a better and a permanent covenant than the one that the psalmist is talking about here. The writer of Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 tells us because of God's oath, it's Jesus who guarantees the effectiveness of this better covenant. Hebrews tells us we, had a, we have a better covenant, a better Savior, better everything because of Christ. And because Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant, those who are called by him may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And now that Jesus has died as a ransom for many, to set them free from their sins committed under the first covenant. Our exodus out of the kingdom of darkness is like the one here that was the deliverance from sin. The victory of Canaan mentioned here is our promised victory of this life here. So when we think about how, God, how good God has been to us and, and will continue to be good to us, how can we not say like the psalmist, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Verse 9. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The redemption from Egypt gave proof of Jehovah's faithfulness to his covenant. The, the redemption here is a picture of God rescuing the Israelites from Egypt and the future return from their captivity from Babylon. Redemption means to free from captivity by paying a price. That's why Christ is our redemption. He paid a price. He purchased us with his blood on Calvary. All people at one time were being held in slavery by sin until Jesus Christ paid the price to free us. Giving us life as a perfect sacrifice. He was that perfect sacrifice. And before Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, P. 
people were allowed into God's presence through the Holy of Holies. But now, all believers can freely go to God, approach God, His throne through prayer. And they can have God in their lives through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayer is the way we approach God. And I love what it says in Hebrews. We're to come boldly before Him. I don't have to pick a number. I don't have to make an appointment. I don't have to wait in line. I can go before God and I can go before Him boldly. No, I, don't, I don't go in fear. I don't go with my head hung low. I don't go afraid to ask Him to meet my needs. Other prayers, thoughtlessly, I'm sorry, I should say others pray thoughtlessly, not thinking much about what they say. Come before the Lord with reverence. Why? Because He is your King. But also come with boldness. Why? Because He's your friend, your counselor, and your comforter. I love what it says in verse 9. Again, at the very last sentence, holy and awesome is His name. Here we find the word reverent. The word awesome means reverend. Reverend. The holy God is the reverend God. That title, reverend, I believe belongs only to God. I do not believe any preacher should ever be called reverend. I could never, it's hard enough just being called pastor, meaning shepherd. But reverend, there's but one that's reverend, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, call no man father, speaking of spiritual figures. And you, you, know, you have but one father in heaven, he said. And you only have one that's reverend. And that's the Lord. The word reverend means to revere. Hey, there's nothing to revere about man. I don't care who he is. The word reverend means to revere. It means to worship. It means to idolize, to adore. There's only one that fits that category, folks. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. God has a redemption for his people. There is no one reverend but God. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Here's the fourth thing to do in order to get help and blessing in times, in difficult times. Obey his will. By, this, by that great deliverance, Jehovah revealed himself to be a God who is holy and must be feared. To fear him, then, is the, is the starting point of all true wisdom. And that wisdom, that wisdom shows, uh, shows in being obedient to all of God's commandments. I mean, it's wise to obey the word of God in obedience. That's where a person gains understanding. And all the attributes of God that demand uh, man's praise are eternal. So people should praise him forever. And it's probably safe to say that most people today aren't too interested in wisdom. They're more interested in making money or in having a good time. Almost everybody wants to be well-liked. But wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom, again, it's not a popular ideal today. And yet we need wisdom to run our lives, to guide us. And if we lack wisdom, hey, we can only shipwreck our own lives. Not only shipwreck our own lives, but the lives of others. 
And we have examples all around us. Where does wisdom come from anyway? How can you find wisdom? It's here in verse 10. It says it starts with revering God. And it adds to this reverence that we must know God's word. The Bible. Because only those who who do his commandments have good understanding. The word beginning here in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word beginning means the first. It means the first in place, time, order, or rank. A principal thing. In other words, reverence for God is the main requirement if a man or woman would be wise. You see, this is where we mess up. This is where we get lost and go astray. Rather than submitting to God and bowing before God so that we might acknowledge and we begin, uh, we, we begin our reflections on life and we begin to pursue our own wisdom instead. True wisdom begins with acknowledging or reverently bowing before God as God. Recognizing Him for who He is. And then it develops our, 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 our acknowledging, our, our wisdom develops by getting to know God. And that includes not only coming uh, to know who He is, but also learning that His thoughts and our ways are definitely and infinitely above beyond ours. Above and beyond ours. It's only through knowing the Word of God, the Bible, and by studying the Bible carefully, not just reading through it and glossing over it and say, oh, I got to read five pages a day and read them as fast as I can and then just really not get anything out of it. It's only through knowing the Bible, by studying the Bible carefully, that God can be known and wisdom can, can be attained. So how foolish it is then for us that we don't take time to study the Bible carefully. The only way to become truly wise is to fear, that is, revere God. Proverbs 1, 7 through 9. This is the same thought that's expressed in Proverbs 1, 7 through 9. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, Solomon says, hear the instructions of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. In other words, they will be obvious. They will be like a big, beautiful piece of jewelry. Wisdom will be obvious to those around you. But too many people just want to skip this step. Thinking that they can become wise by life experience, by age, by education, or a combination of those things. But if we don't acknowledge God as the source of wisdom, then our foundation that we build upon for making wise decisions is shaky at best. And we're bound to make mistakes, and we're bound to make foolish choices. In closing... I don't, can't remember who said this, but it said, no person ever rises higher than their idea of God. No person ever rises higher than their idea of God. And on the other hand, a loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of people's moral values and human kindness. And I think we could all say that we're bothered by what we're seeing in the world, this this, this disregard for human life that is that is taken over in in large parts of the world today 
But here's the thing, what do we expect when countries like ours openly turn their back on God and they reject His Word? We condemn, we're upset at the breakdown of of the moral standards, but again, what do we expect? When we have focused our worship services on ourselves and on our often trivial needs rather than on God Himself. See, here's what happened. What we think of God affects what we are and what we do. Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm, Lord. And again, just 10 short verses. Yet, Lord, there's so much involved there, Lord. So much that we can glean from God. And so, Lord, let us remember to praise you, God. Lord, again, if we're going to receive your help and your blessing in difficult times, we need to praise you, God. We also need to remember the wonderful works that you've done, Lord. Your mighty works, your wonderful works, Lord. And Father, to trust you for all things, for all of our provisions, whatever they might be, God. Submitting to you, God surrendering to you in all things, God. And then, to know your word, Lord. To know your word, to study your word, God. Lord, we're so thankful for saving us, God. We're so thankful for being a, 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 as the psalmist said, a, a holy, holy and awesome God. Reverend one who we idolize and adore. Father, let us never lose that adoration. Let us never idolize anyone or anything else, God. May you always be our focus, the heart of everything that we do. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray that through the study of God's word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he would bring conviction to your life, recognition that, that I realize I need Christ. I need my sins forgiven. I need Christ. I need to, I need to be redeemed. I, I need to follow him. I need his wisdom. I need the resources that he has for me. I need the provisions that he will provide for me, physical, spiritual, whatever there is, whatever he has for me, I need it. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if God has spoken to you and you recognize your need for Jesus, As we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And then when the song is over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.